So as you guys already know, we've, uh, and I've mentioned this before, we have transitioned out of the, the greetings, out of the introduction of the book of Romans into what I would call the bad news. And so Paul spends a couple of chapters here dealing with the bad news. And so last week we did a standalone sermon. It was a topical message on the wrath of God. It was the, the doctrine of divine wrath. And so this week as we actually get into the text we're going to be considering uh, man's place in all of this. We're going to be talking about something called the depravity of man, the, the depraved nature of mankind. And this is what you would call biblical anthropology. It is the study of man. It's what the Bible has to say about me and you, who we are, what our condition is before God, out of Christ, inside of Christ. And this is all so very important for us to have a, a biblical understanding of mankind, of our standing before God, a holy God. And so today I'm going to be talking about the depravity of man. And I'll talk more about that particular word and what I mean by that. But, uh, you know, I just want to start by saying this. Uh, this is a, a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic. This is a very heavy passage of Scripture. And I've, you know, I've never read this book, but I've heard it referenced. It's called the, the Juvenilization of American Christianity. And it traces the roots back to the 1930s and 40s when churches began to try to really reach the youth. And so they began to make some significant changes to how they do church in order to draw the youth in. And it started really with the youth programs, but it, it crept into adult church. And over the years, what we see a lot in, in our country is uh, the juvenilization of the church itself. And this is, this is adult church. Okay? We've, we've come here to consider deep things, hard truths. We don't shy away from it. We don't apologize for it. We don't stop up our ears and say we, we don't want to hear it. We, we confront it face on. If the Scriptures has something to say, we need to hear it. We need, we need to uh, discuss it and consider it in its context at face value and the implications that it has for you and me. Amen? And so, again, this message can be considered offensive to, to people, but the, the messenger, myself, should never be offensive. So it's not my heart. I don't delight in talking about some of these things. Uh, I come to you with fear and trembling, as it were. And I want to be faithful to God, and I want you guys to hear the truth as it is written in the Scriptures, but these are challenging things. So I, I pray that there would be no offense uh, from, from me as, as God's messenger here. Just know my heart in that. And so, in a nutshell here, as I've already said, we're talking about man's nature, man's heart. The Bible says very clearly that man's heart is wicked, that we're, we're all in that condition outside of Christ. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, and this is, a, this is a verse worth memorizing. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so basically that is the condition of all humankind. Our hearts are wicked. They are desperately sick. And we don't even know the half of it. We can't even know just how bad it really is. And that's what that verse is saying. And so, you know, sometimes it concerns me when well-meaning brothers and sisters say, well, God knows my heart. And I, I get what they're, what they're getting at, 
they're saying that my intentions are right and no one else may know that, but the Lord knows it. But I still cringe a little bit because God does know your heart and He knows my heart and really our hearts are wicked and we don't even know just how bad it really is. In Jeremiah 13.23, Jeremiah poses the question. He says, can a leopard change its spots? Well, it's an obvious answer. No, it cannot. And he goes on to say, then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So basically what he's saying is, is you can no more reform your own heart than a leopard can change his spots. It is just the human condition. That is who we are. That is the state that we are trapped in. It's inescapable outside of Christ. In Ephesians, into the New Testament, Paul says this in chapter 2, picking up in verse 1, "...and you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins." I quote that verse a lot. That is our condition outside of Christ. We are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So we were dead in our trespass and sin. We were really in bondage to Satan himself. We lived our lives in service to him. Most people don't even know that, but that is the reality according to the Scriptures. It says that the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul makes that clear. We were dead in our trespass and sins. We were in bondage. We were in slavery to sin. We were under the power of the wicked one. And that we were all engaged in the lust of the flesh. And we were by nature, our nature is that we are children of wrath. It means God's wrath is on us. We were disobedient to God. We were rebellious against His revelation of Himself and His goodness. And so we were under His wrath. And that's kind of what I was talking about last week. And so that is the condition of men and women outside of Christ. We're born that way. And we call this the original sin. The original sin. The doctrine of original sin. You may have heard that. But uh, Romans 5.12 spells it out for us. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so we believe that God created the world. He created it perfect. He created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He commanded them to tend the garden, to work the garden. He gave them one command. He said, you cannot eat of this one tree. I'll put this tree here. You can't have it. And we know the story. What did they do? They ate of it anyways. And so then the curse came. God cursed the serpent. He cursed the man. He cursed the woman. And then from that point forward, everyone who was born into the lineage of Adam and Eve were born with a sin nature. Born depraved. Alive physically, dead spiritually. And that's what Romans 5.12 says here. Just as this one man sinned, then sin entered into the world, and through them it has spread to all men and women. No one escapes that. That is our nature. And the result thereof, Romans 3.10.11-23, and 23, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that is the tragic and unfortunate state of mankind. Well, that 
with that comes the glory of the Gospel. That is what makes the Gospel so beautiful. I had a brother tell me just before the service here, the diamond of God's grace shines brighter against the black backdrop of our sin and our corrupt and fallen nature. So Romans 5, verse 18 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. We just talked about that. It goes on to say, Even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so that is the glory of the Gospel. That is the glory of the cross. That we are all sinners. We are all desperately and hopelessly lost but by God's grace, through the righteous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect life of obedience and His sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, we shall be saved. We shall be made right for as many as put their trust in Christ to save them from this wretched condition. So ultimately, uh, that's where Paul's going in the letter of Romans, okay? He starts with the bad news, as I have said over and over. He starts with the bad news, but he's going to spend a lot of time talking about the good news. So I just want you to know that. There's a couple chapters of bad and a lot of chapters of good. So we just have to, uh, we just have to buckle up and push through this, but it's as good for us. Because this is true love, guys. As I said last week, Paul is being truly loving by telling them the hard truth. Plain and simple. It's not loving to tell people that you're basically good, that we may make mistakes, we may make poor choices, but we're all basically good, and that God is just really indifferent and He, he doesn't really care, He overlooks those things, and that we're all going to be okay. That we're all just going to make it. We're all going to be in heaven one day. That is not loving. Now, if a doctor did that, that's malpractice. If a doctor knows that you have a terminal illness... But he doesn't want to tell you that because he knows that would kind of wreck your day. Okay, I'm not going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to tell you the hard news. And you're not even going to know that you need... And there's a cure, but you don't even know that you need it because you don't even know the bad news. Okay, and that's essentially what we're talking about here. There is bad news, but there is a cure. Praise God. God secured that for us. But you have to know that you are terminally ill, that you need this cure, that you need this good news. And that is what Paul is doing here. So from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.23, Paul is laying out this indictment against all men. And he's going to start with pagan idolatry, which is what we're looking at today. And then he's going to deal with the moralist. He's going to deal with the religious people. And then he's going to rein it all in and he's going to indict the whole world before God. And so I would say that for some of us in this room, we may really relate with what we're hearing today. I think from my, my testimony and what God saved me out of, I relate more with the, uh, the pagan idolater. And there may be some people who don't. You grew up good and you were very moral. And don't worry, we'll, we'll uh, get there next week. And so no one escapes that. But with that... <clears throat> We'll pick up in, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them 
for God has shown it to them. So we talked last week about God's wrath, what it is, what it is not. Talked about how we are not to execute wrath. Talked about two different kinds of wrath. We talked about the impulsive, explosive wrath. It blows up in a moment and then comes regret, remorse, guilt. And I think that every one of us in this room can relate with that kind of wrath. That is not the kind of wrath that we're talking about here. This word here, as I said, it's orge. It's controlled. It's measured. It's calculated. It's rightly executed anger. God doesn't just blow up impulsively and then regret what He did afterwards, nor is He passive. He doesn't get angry and then cool down and say, you know what, forget it. I'll let that go. No, it has to be dealt with. And we're told here that that wrath, that wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The word revealed there, um, I think the significance of it is simply this. It's always been there. God is a God of wrath. And the word means uncovered, a revealing of what was hidden. And that's what, it comes from the same word as uh, Revelation, the book Revelation. Something that was a mystery before, but it's been uncovered, it's been revealed to us, and that is God's wrath. And it's always been there. And now it's being poured out against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now we may think that those two words are synonymous when you hear that. And when, when we talk about godliness, usually what enters into our mind, I think, is some sort of characteristic, some character trait. Kindness, patience, loving. We may even say Christ-likeness. But godliness, to be godly, is to be devoted to God. You are mindful of the things of God. You desire to serve the Lord. You desire to obey the Lord. Proverbs 3 says, in all our ways we ought to acknowledge Him, and He will direct our paths. That is godliness. So ungodliness is to reject God. I'm not concerned with the things of God. I don't care what He says. I don't care how He feels. I don't care what He's told me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. That's ungodliness. And that results in unrighteousness. And that's when we get into sinful actions and wicked behaviors. And there are so many of them that we can name. And that will come up at the end of the chapter here. But that's what God is revealing His wrath against. A lack of reverence and devotion to Him which results in unrighteousness. And then it says, and those who suppress the truth. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Those who know the truth, you know the truth, and you block it out. You ignore it. You reject it. And I can think back in, in my life before I knew Christ, but I had, a, you know, in the South, you grow up and you, you hear a lot about God in the Bible and, and most people will tell you that they believe on some level and they may even identify as a Christian or they would say, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist or, or whatever the, the case may be. But one thing that I knew was though I believed that there was a God, my life was absolutely opposed to Him in every single way and I could never say that. I was a believer or a Christian or, or anything like that. And so what did I do? I tried to block it out. Anytime it would enter into my mind this, this reality that there was a God and that my life was opposed to Him in every way and that I was accountable to Him, I would just try to block it out. And I remember I had a, I had a friend at one point who... Um, for whatever reason, started to uh, think about spiritual things and God, and they, they wanted to pray for me. 
and that made me so mad. And they started praying in front of me, and I literally was like making all kinds of noises and talking loud and like plugging my ears. I didn't want to hear it. And that is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And that was what mankind did. They knew of God. We're going to talk about that. But they rejected God. They didn't want Him. It resulted in unrighteous behavior. And then ultimately suppressing, blocking, rejecting, ignoring the truth that had been revealed to them. And that's why God's wrath is being poured out. Well, Paul's going to go on to talk about how God's nature has been revealed. He says God's wrath has been revealed from heaven, but God's nature has been revealed as well. And so verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So through God's creation, God's invisible qualities are made visible. It's almost like a play on words here. It says His invisible attributes are clearly seen. That which is invisible is seen. How can that be? So that which is invisible of God, His nature, His essence, His attributes are seen through creation. It's a tangible way in which we can look around and see the realities and the evidence of God to a degree. And we're told here that it's especially His eternal power that is put on display. God's eternality, God's great power. Those are things that are put on display. And it says His Godhead. That too is put on display. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Theotes in the Greek. And it is the revelation of God, His attributes, which He reveals for people to know about Him. And so God has done that, first and foremost, through creation. And we call this general revelation. So there's general revelation, that which God has displayed of Himself through creation. And then there's specific revelation or special revelation. That's what we have in the Scriptures And then progressive revelation. Throughout time, God has revealed more and more of Himself to us as seen from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so, in general revelation alone, what can we know about God? You may hear that. God has revealed Himself through creation. All right. well, how so? What exactly can we we deduce from creation about God? Well, one, the obvious one, He is powerful. God is so very powerful. And we know from the Bible that He spoke these things into existence, which is amazing to us. But just to simply look around at the world itself and to consider when you're driving through the mountains or when you're standing on the shore of the ocean or wherever you may be, just to consider that God did that. That is incredible. That is power. God's genius. God's genius. His creative genius. And um, I don't... Yeah, I don't know that the word imagination is, is really the right word, but you just look around at the world and so many of the, the things that we see, even in just the animal kingdom or down in the sea, or, or how everything is it's tied together in such a way with the distance of the, the sun to the earth. And there are so many things that are absolutely necessary that it could not just happen by random chance. There's just no way. Not possible. That is God's creative genius demonstrated in creation. His pre-existence. In order for God to create this, He must have existed before, right? So God is eternal. God has existed before creation. 
He is not confined by creation or time. He is outside of that, and therefore He is transcendent. God's transcendence. He's not bound by time or space. He is outside of it completely. He is not subject to that which He created. And so all of this points to the fact that God is big. He's a big God. He's an amazing God. Amen? And so if for no other reason you can look at the world and know that. So then to say, okay, well, I'm going to worship a tree instead. Or, you know, I'm going I'm to worship mankind because we're all basically good and together we can do amazing things. So let's just stand in a big circle, hold hands, and sing We Are the World. Or whatever the case may be. Some of you may be too young to even know that. I can barely remember that myself. But uh, at any rate, there's no excuse. There's, and that's what he says. Therefore, they are without excuse. And he's talking about people who worship lesser things. Pagan idolaters. People that worship things other than God Himself. They don't worship the Creator. They worship the creation. And, you know, frankly, guys, we can do the same thing. And I would say that there are many of us in here who may be engaging in that even to this very hour. We're not really honoring God. We're not honoring the giver of the gift. We're worshiping the gift itself. The things that we enjoy in this world that have been given to us, that takes the place of God Himself. We'll talk more about that in a second, but that's, that's ultimately what, what Paul is drawing out here. Now, I think it's... it's it's good to, to remember where Paul is writing from. Okay, Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, but where is he writing from right now? Does anybody remember? Corinth. He's writing from Corinth. And I'm sure you guys remember just how bad of a place Corinth was, and I've talked about that in great detail. And it was known for its pagan idolatry and temple worship, just really grotesque stuff. And so I, I don't doubt that as Paul is there in Corinth, he's absolutely shocked by the things that he is seeing. He's, he is troubled to his, his soul, and, and he's writing about these things in some way with first-hand knowledge and, and experience seeing these things happen right in front of him in the culture there. Well, verse 21, it says that because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And so what we're, what we're looking at here is the, the devolution of mankind. Man started out... As I said, in the garden, good, chose to sin, sin entered into the world, but man still had a knowledge of God. But as the world grew, as the population expanded, by and large, more and more people turned away from God. They rejected, they suppressed the knowledge of the true God. And as these things continued on, we would see this process of uh, denigration as they would go down and deeper into worse and lower levels of debauchery and sin and depravity. And we're told here that even though they had a sufficient knowledge, they had enough to know there was a Creator God, they did not honor Him. They didn't honor Him. 
They did not recognize him as such, nor did they give him thanks. That's significant, guys. That's something that we need we need to be thinking about, you know. I was also just kind of thinking about this. God loves to be sought. God loves for us to seek after him. And God revealed enough of himself in creation that man would seek after him. But they didn't. Instead, they rejected and they went and did their own thing. And I think that in our own lives, God desires that we seek after Him. How often do we stop and look around and just consider, God, what are you up to? God, where are you at in this situation in my life right now? Where are God's fingerprints, if I may, in your life? How can God be honored? How can God be thanked? Because certainly there is an unending list of reasons in all of our lives in here for why we can thank God. And so often we don't. Instead, we complain. And I think that's demonstrated even in our our prayer life. Because we may not say it, but our prayers usually start with what? A wish list. And so what is that saying, really? God, I want more. God, I don't have this. God, I don't have that. And they may be legitimate needs. They may be desperate needs. But we don't start by simply thanking Him or honoring Him or recognizing Him or saying, God, I see You. I see what You have done. I thank You for what You have done. I thank You for what You are doing. That is honoring God. That is recognizing Him as the Creator, as Lord above all. Now, they didn't do that. They rejected God altogether. And then we're told they became futile in their thoughts. That means vain or foolish. even means perverted. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And that is to say that their hearts grew colder. And their eyes, they were blind. And they were desensitized to the truth, to the reality. As they continued to go deeper and deeper into this depraved state. We're told that they began to to worship images of corrupt men and birds and fish and bugs even. And honestly, you look back at uh, ancient idol worship and some of the images that they created, they really are grotesque. And it's just such a strange thing that they would create something like that and worship it. And so you have the majesty and the beauty of the transcendent God the holy God, the Creator God, you reject Him and then you create this disgusting, grotesque image and you worship that? You thank that? And really it's just so that a person can have license to do whatever they want to do. Really so that they can worship themselves. Because they do away with a God to whom they must answer and give an account. And they create this own God in their own image, essentially. And they do whatever they want to do with no concern of giving an account. So they reject the true God. They didn't honor or thank Him. They became cold, blind, senseless, empty, foolish, perverted, created false gods that reflected their own wicked hearts and actions. And so I wanted to read to you Psalm 115, uh, verses 3 through 8. This this captures this whole process uh, really well. So it says... But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. There's a contrast here between the true God, the powerful God who is in heaven. In verse 4 it says, Their idols, their false gods, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, 
but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. My idol would be bald. Just saying. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Now, this is verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So you create a God in your own image. You create a God like yourself. And that's what we do when we stand in judgment of God. We don't like certain things that we may have heard or seen in His Word even, and we reject that. We create a God in our own image. We create a God that is awfully lot like us. Unbelievers, you really see this. And they say, I reject that. No, no, they'll take some of this, some of that. They'll tie that together. And their God looks a lot like them. But he says, then you become like your God. You become like it. It has ears, it can't hear. It has eyes, it can't see. It has a nose, it can't smell. It has feet, it can't walk. You create a God like you and you become like it. Blind, deaf, dumb, senseless. And that is the progression. That's what happens when you give yourself to, to worship other things than God Himself. So when a society has given itself to worship the one true God, it elevates that society. When we worship the one true God and love Him and serve Him, it elevates us. But when we reject God and we serve and worship lesser things, it denigrates. And so how does God respond to that? Verse 24 in Romans. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So that's what God does. He gives them up. He gives them over to their wicked desires, the wants of their wicked heart. He gives them over to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And I talked about this last week. I mentioned there are six different types of wrath that are outlined in the Scriptures. This one is abandoning wrath. I think it's one of the more frightening kinds for us where we're at to think that God could just let go and say, all right, fine. You wanted it. You kept going after it, I've tried to stop you, I've tried to warn you, and yet you would rather have that than me. So go for it. And then you're given over to that. That's a very scary thing. That's a very scary thing. So instead of true worship, they worship false gods. Instead of recognizing the Creator, they worship uh, created things. As I said, they engaged in self-worship and God gave it to them. God said, you can have it. So verse 26, for this reason, and again, here's the phrase, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. 
So as I said, this is the second time that the phrase is used. God gave them up. And what did God give them up to? Vile passions. Vile passions. And then Paul addresses what those passions are. And he says, women engaging in sexual acts with other women and men engaging in sexual acts with men. He says, leaving that which is natural. Leaving that which is natural. So, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about this. And this is a very challenging thing to address, especially in the day and age we live, especially in the culture that we live, especially right here in the Bay Area when we deal with the issue of homosexuality, uh, same-sex attraction, what the Bible says about it, what God says about it. First, I want to start by saying what Paul is getting at here is, and I think this is a very fascinating thing, when you start to see rampant sexual immorality, that is a good indicator where the society is at. When they have turned away from God and they have rejected Him altogether, you're going to see an increase, you're going to see a rise in gross sexual immorality. And in the world that we live in today, it's almost comical to try to talk about sexual purity because that is so far gone. You look at TV, you, you go online, you see uh, how pervasive it is with, with teenagers, young teens, um, marriage outside of sex, adultery. Uh, I mean, there's just so many uh, horrific things going on out there, and it's all become so very normal. It's so very normal, and to, to speak against those things, you're the weirdo. It's like you're, you're somehow on the outside of the culture and who are you you know you're old-fashioned to think that things ought not be that way but then it, it gets so much worse we look at the we look at sex trafficking and just all of the horrific things that are going on out there today and the scriptures seem to indicate that that is very much a reality of a society that has turned from God that has rejected him and here it specifically addresses same-sex attraction or homosexuality. Um, and so I, I have to, to speak to this. First off, let me say this. It's a challenge because Christians have been pegged as um, those who are very hateful or antagonistic against people with same-sex attraction. And that is unfortunate. And there are plenty of Christians out there and preachers who have done that and have given um, a bad reputation to, to us for that. And, and I hate that. And the real reality is where we live right now on a daily basis, I, I interact with people in the community who have same-sex attraction. That's the way that it is. And I don't hate them. I don't dislike them. Many of the, of the folks that I know, men and women, are, are really kind people. They're very nice. They're very friendly. Uh, they they um, oftentimes have a, you know, a, a heart about them. They desire to, to serve you and to be a blessing to you. And it's offensive because that they identify themselves with that. That is their identity. I don't say, hey, my name is Rob and I'm a heterosexual male. I don't do that. That's not my identity. You know, I love the Lord. I'm a worshiper of, of Jesus. There are so many things that I might use to, to describe myself, but it wouldn't be that. 
But that, that is what, what they will often use is their sexuality. And so when you address that particular issue, you're attacking them. You're attacking their identity. And that's how it's perceived. And you, you see how, how tangled up that can get. And that's very unfortunate. But, but here is the thing. That was not God's design. God designed it that it would be male and female and that started in the garden. God instituted that with Adam and Eve. A covenant marriage between man and woman. It was very clearly laid out as such. And then Jesus and the book of Matthew reaffirmed this very thing into the New Testament. That marriage, covenant marriage was between a man and a woman. And what God has joined together, what? Let not man separate. And then Paul and Ephesians affirmed the same thing. It's crystal clear. This was God's design. This is what is natural. And that is God's standard. And ultimately, we have to decide, are we going to align ourselves with God's standard or not? As hard as that may be, and I get it. I, I know some folks, and I just think, man, I, I couldn't imagine them you know, having to, to walk away from that. But before God, that is... The, the responsibility given to every man and woman. And this goes for all of us in here. And, I, you know, this is the other thing. Oftentimes you'll hear Christians speak against homosexuality like that's the cardinal sin. God doesn't care about your gossip. God doesn't care about slander. God doesn't care about laziness. God doesn't care about fill in the blank. He cares about that. And that is patently false. Sin is sin in God's eyes. Last week I talked about the idea of sin as missing the mark. It's an archery term. Anything that misses the bullseye is sin. And you don't, we don't create categories of... Now I, I had a brother tell me afterwards that he, he felt like that's not the best uh, analogy because honestly most of us, we weren't even aiming at a, at a target. I mean we were shooting somewhere way off in this direction. But even still when we're aiming for the bullseye and we miss it, that is missing the mark. And God expects that perfection. He expects us to, to hit at the mark. And we all fall so short of that, do we not? Who in here is without sin? Nobody, right? None of us. And so we can't look down at someone else. We can't, we can't uh, be mean or, or hateful towards someone else. But we have to stand for the standard that God has set. And when it comes up in the Word of God, we have to treat it. And so this is, this is uh, what Paul says was a, a, a direct result of people suppressing the truth of God and worshiping other things, anything but God, and God gave them up to it, and it resulted in the defilement of God's holy covenant of marriage and, and men uh, sleeping with men and women for women and leaving that which was natural, that which God set into place in verse 28, it says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So again, this, this idea, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They had a knowledge of God. No one can say that they are without excuse. Okay, uh, or There is no excuse. No one can say that they're innocent. They have a knowledge of God. It's, it's in us. We see it in creation. We, eternity is in the heart of man. The Bible says that, that 
we have this sense within us that there's more than just this. There's more to life than this. And yet they didn't want that. They rejected that. And so God gave them over to it. God gave them over to it. This is the third time that we see that. When the, when the Bible repeats itself, you've got to pay close attention to that. So even as they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge and they rejected that, God gave them over to it. And it says here He gave them to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. From this we get the doctrine of reprobation. That, that, that uh, verse, that word. And that is when God gives you over and the question is, is there any coming back? And people debate about that. But once God releases and He gives you to it and you go down that path, is there any return? Because God's hand is, is off of you. God has let go. God's intervention is over. And you've been given to that wicked, sinful nature that, that is in mankind and all bets are off. The filter is gone. There's no restraint. You've been handed over. And he says, this is the result of that. Verse 29. This is the result of being handed over to a debased mind. Being filled with all unrighteousness. And that's kind of a blanket statement. All of these things fall underneath this. Sexual immorality. Notice that's the first one on the list. Wickedness. Covetousness. Maliciousness. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. That's a heavy list. And this this person that's been handed over is full of these things. I think it's good to make that distinction because I think honestly all of us in here can look at this list and think, well, that kind of sounds like me a little bit right there. And so I, I categorize this in basically three ways. One, they are filled with. Filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. This is what they are filled with. I don't have time to get into every one of those words there. Secondly, this is what they are. This is, this is who they are. They're, they're a whisperer. It's a gossip. Someone who goes around and whispers in people's ears with the intentions of stirring up strife and division. Maybe making themselves feel better. They're uh, backbiters. Talking trash behind people's backs. Acting one way to their face and then going back and slandering them. Haters of God. Violent. Proud boasters. You're arrogant, cocky, and braggadocious about it. Inventors of evil things. I thought that's amazing. It's not enough just to be engaged in evil. You've got to come up with something new. You've got to invent something evil. That's, that's a whole new level. Disobedient to parents. That's fascinating that that would be included in a list like this, right? But God treats disobedience to parents severely. This is what they are not. They're not discerning. They're not trustworthy. They're not loving. They're not forgiving. They're not merciful. This is the marker of a person that's been given over completely. Someone who has a debased mind. God has let go and given them to their own wicked impulses. And it results in this. And again, I just want to make the point, 
it goes downhill. When God lets go, when we reject Him, it gets worse. It only gets worse. And I think some of us in this room know about this. We know very well what we are capable of without God. We know very well where we have been, what God has saved us from. And some of us know, some of us have experienced what happens when you come to God, God restores you, straightens up your life, you turn away from God, and you go right back. And we know that it can, you go deeper and farther and faster the second time around, third time around, fourth time around. And so we understand that is the case. With God, it's wonderful. God will take you to a glorious place. You're elevated. Without God, you only go down. You only go down individually, as a society, as a nation. And we're seeing that, aren't we? Aren't we seeing that? And so verse 32, it says, "...who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death..." not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. And so you know the righteous judgment of God, you know the truth, you disobey it anyways, you reject Him, you sin, and not only do you do it, but you approve of others who do it too. That's, that's a whole nother level of bad. It's like not enough for me to do it, I enjoy watching other people do it too. And there are you know, a lot of folks out there, that is the case, they get, there's just something that they get out of watching other people get involved in the same kinds of um, transgression and sin. And you know, just a little quick point of application there. This is one reason why I get really convicted by watching garbage on TV and, and you know, online, things like that. Because, you know, I, years ago I got really convicted that I was being entertained by something that Christ died for. I was being entertained by something that God hates. And so, and I, I think that ties directly to that. You're not only engaging in it yourself, but you're entertained, standing in approval of other people who do it too. And in a sense, that's kind of what we're doing. When we give ourselves over to entertainment that is totally against Christ and against God, that which is wicked, that which exalts sinful immorality. We watch that and some people say, oh, I'm not really convicted by that or it doesn't really bother me. But the reality is you're being entertained by something that God hates. You're being entertained by something that Christ died for. And so um, Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. And so here, here's the thing, guys, and I, I want to close it all right here with this. Christ died for people like this. Christ died for pagan idolaters. Christ died for God-rejecting people like me and you. Those of us in here who have lived a life that was absolutely contrary to God, we lived for ourselves, we rejected the knowledge of God that we had, and we went after our own life, Christ died for us. God sought to save us from this. And let me just say this, talking about this idea of, of being reprobate or debased or handed over, if that concerns you, if you're worried about that, if you're sitting here thinking, oh man, I wonder if that's me, I hope that's not me, I would say it's not you. God has not given up on you because I don't even think you would care. I think if God had handed you over, given you over, and that was it for you, then there wouldn't be a fiber in you that even cared about that. So if you care about that today, praise God, He's drawing you. God's speaking to you. 
God wants you. God wants to pull you in. God wants you to recognize Him as the Lord, as Creator God, as all-powerful, as the Lord and Savior of your life. If you're sitting here and you don't care, if this is you, you should be concerned. You should be worried. And I would tell you to fall at the feet of, of Christ. I would tell you to, to repent, to turn from your wickedness, and to cry out that God would have mercy on you. Because God delights in mercy. Amen? He does not, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. His desire is that we would turn and that we would come to Him and that He might save you and restore you. And that is the glory behind all of this. I opened up with that saying that the diamond of God's grace shines most brightly against the backdrop of our black sin. And that is what this is all about right here. So as we consider the, the, the depth of this, I want it to be against the backdrop of God's wonderful grace and His majesty. Amen? His love. Because His love is infinite. His love is great. His love is powerful. And His love is toward you and me. And I want to thank Him for that. So why don't we close and I'll, I'll pray for us. God, we love You. And we thank You that even though this is us, that even though we were dead in our trespass and sin and we were children of wrath by nature and we were enemies against You, God, You sent Your Son to die. You demonstrated Your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Forgive us, God, for when we reject that knowledge of You and when we give ourselves to lesser things. Forgive us, God, when we worship the creation rather than the Creator. And so I pray for every heart in this room today, God. For those who are close to You, I pray that You would draw them closer still. For those that are far from You, God, they are not so far that Your arm cannot reach. I pray, O oh God, that You would draw them in and that they would turn to You today, that they would confess Your name, that they would put their trust in You as their Savior, and that they would know the newness of life and they would know You as their loving and heavenly Father. You're so good to us, God. You're so good. And we worship You in this place. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.